tonight's going to be awesome. I'm going to be preaching. We've been doing a series on favor, and tonight I'm going to talk about favor over the writing. And uh, this is a little bit unconventional in the sense of this isn't going to be traditionally the Easter story. This isn't going to be who moved the stone. This is going to be about Jesus uh, giving us favor over the writing. And let me just say this. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. All the stuff in the beginning is prophesying or setting, getting ready for Jesus coming. And then everything after Jesus coming is all about what Jesus did. It points back to him. So the beauty of the Bible is you can pretty much take any story and find Jesus in it. Because he's the author and the finisher of our faith. And so tonight, I'm going to look at, we're going to look at a story out of Daniel chapter 5, continuing our series on favor. But I'm going to show you how this story relates directly to Jesus and our salvation and what he's done for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. And for those of you who have just been coming here, I want to say this. Favor, we've been talking about this over the last couple weeks. Favor is not immunity, it is advantage. Okay, now there's a difference there. Favor, we say favor is not immunity. Favor doesn't mean that everything's going to be roses. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be sunshine and rainbows all the way to heaven. We know, as you may have been through life, that bad things can happen even to good people, right? Bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. Judgment reigns on both the just and the unjust. So we recognize that favor is not immunity. Just because we talk and say you're favored and and you're blessed and prospered, it doesn't mean that every single day is going to be the best of the best of the best, right? So we have to understand that favor is not immunity. Favor is advantage, okay? So favor is advantage. How How many of you would like a little bit of advantage in life? Right, you go in for that job interview and you've got favor, you got advantage with the person who's giving the interview. Maybe you're up for a promotion versus everybody else. Wouldn't it be nice to have just a little extra advantage? Something kind of like the ace in the hole, you got something on your side. Well, that's what favor is. Favor is advantage. Let me just give you our, our definition, and it's kind of a long one, but I think you're gonna like it. Favor is the supernatural ability to complete your mission on earth. With abundance. We believe at City of God that every person has a mission. Okay? I've got a mission. You've got a mission. My mission is different from your mission in the sense that I've got get different gifts and talents. You've got different gifts and talents. I'm called to be a preacher. You're called to be a whatever it is. Insert your occupation. Insert the dreams that God has placed in your heart. Our dreams are different, yet at the same time, we both have jobs to do. And they're to fulfill the Great Commission. So every single one of us has got to get on mission. And we need God's supernatural ability, His divine favor, to be able to accomplish that mission. You say, well, why is that? Because we know that the devil, who is the enemy, he's out there working overtime trying to stop us. He's trying to keep us from accomplishing the Great Commission, number one. Trying to keep us from fulfilling our mission, number two. He's trying to hurt people, number three. He's just trying to do bad things all around, okay? So we need God's favor to be able to overcome that, okay? So favor is the supernatural ability to complete your mission, say, my mission, mission. on earth, with abundance, and ready for this one, in the face of any adversity. And as Paige was saying, we believe in, in God's abundance, God, it literally, the Bible says that he became poor that we might become rich. 
Now, that's interesting because sometimes when we get in church, people don't like to talk about money, uh, you know, because we recognize that money can be can easily become an idol in our life. But Jesus says, no, I became poor. I laid out everything so that you could have all of my riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says, that God says, I want you to have abundance in every life. One of our favorite verses is John 10, 10. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. But I, Jesus, have come to give you life and life more abundantly. He literally says he wants to give you abundant life. Now, I can't, I can't understand why anybody on planet Earth would read those verses and have a, a, just even a general understanding and then turn around and say, no, I don't want that. I don't want healing in my body. I don't want, you know, strength in myself. I don't want to have, you know, the ability to do this or the ability to do that. I don't want to have abundance in my life. No, I don't want to have extra finances that I could help somebody else with. That, that's just too much. That's right. That's, that is too much. God wants to. God is too much for us. He wants to bring us, each and every one of us, to a place of abundance in every aspect of our life. And the last part of this definition says, in the face of any adversity. That no matter what you're going through, God can still make you abundant. Right. Psalm 23 says it like this. In the midst of my enemies, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I'm not going to fear any evil. Right in the midst of my enemies, God prepares a banqueting table. So he says, look, even though you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, even though things may not be going the best right now, God still prepares a great big old feasting table for you to have abundance in the midst and in the face of adversity. That's That's a good place to say, Amen. amen. There you go. You got it right. Amen. So God's favor is still necessary no matter what is going on in our life, in the good times and the bad. When it's good, sometimes we forget about God. When it's bad, then all of a sudden everyone starts coming back, Jesus, I need you. But it doesn't matter in the good and the bad. We still need to be trusting in God, believing for his abundance, no matter what goes on in life. Amen? Another, another little thing that we've been saying, just to kind of catch everybody up to speed, is one day of favor is worth a lifetime of labor. One moment in time can be so impacting that it can literally alter your course and the course of people around you because of that moment of favor. Think about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on that cross. That one instant altered history forever. That one moment of favor with God has altered billions of lifetimes. Seven billion people on earth, that they would receive a man, the world would be totally a, a totally different place. All the hundreds of thousands of millions of people that live before us, that one moment in time, that one moment of favor with God because of Jesus has altered lifetimes of people attempting and trying to make themselves right through their own works or through their own flesh or through their own ideas. God has made us right in that one instant. Amen? Many don't realize this, but God has favored you and is going to favor you. And he has favor for you. And I want to show you what that looks like today. You know, we've been looking at this over the course of this series. We've been kind of honing in on Daniel because he was a real guy, number one. And he lived in a world just like ours. There's a little bit of good, a little bit of bad, a lot of things going on around him. He lived in the historical kingdom of Babylon. And Babylon was was uh, decidedly anti-God and anti-Jesus. Uh, well, obviously Jesus wasn't there, but they were anti-God, anti-Israel, all these things. And here was this group of guys who worshipped God. And yet in the midst of all this anti-ness, anti-Godness, they were still able to come to a place of prominence 
and prosperity and promotion, and yet they never compromised their worship. They never compromised their character or their integrity. And what I see is that a lot of believers think they need to sell out to the world to get promoted, to get to the place where they think that they can have real abundance. And yet the Bible tells us the opposite. The more we lean into God, the more we trust in God, the more favor He shows us and we'll have the ability to overcome this world system that would try to oppose us. Amen? That's favor. So tonight, this message is called Favor Over the Writing. Turn to Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to put it up on the screen here. And I'm just going to give you a little heads up. This is a longer passage, but it's good to get the word inside of you. Some of you, has anybody never, who's never read Daniel chapter 5? Okay, no one wants to hold their hand up. That's okay. I see that hand. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah. Wait till we get to Micah. And then, you, then everyone's hands will be up. Hands all over the place. <laughs> Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1 says this. I'm reading in New Living Translation. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, now this is great names, Nezers and Shazars, and all those kind of things, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. Okay, everyone knows what a concubine is. If not, you can ask me later. So they brought those gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Okay, get the picture here. They're having a party. They're, they're having so much fun. They, they hold up their golden goblet and say, Oh, we worship you, golden goblet. And some other guy's got a stick over here. We worship you, stick. And Okay, you get this kind of ludicrous, right? Suddenly, they see the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. Okay, it was important that it was near the lampstand for some reason. The king saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees began knocking together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor, and I will and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He'll He'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That's the king's voice, in case you're wondering. But when all the king's wise men and all the king's horses had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed, and his face turned pale. His nobles, too, were shaken. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, Long live the king. Don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. Or the Holy Spirit. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, not to be confused with Belshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought in before the king. The king asked him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? 
I've heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you and that you are filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I am told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor, and you have a gold chain placed around your neck. You will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answers the king, and this is, this is where the hashtag, like a boss, came from. Okay? In case you're wondering, it came out of the Bible. He says, keep your gifts or give them to someone else. But I will tell you what the writing means. So he says, look, I don't need all that stuff. I've already been to the second in command. The third is actually demotion in reality. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill and spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given a mind of, the, of a wild animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow and was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you've not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write this message and this is what it says. Many, many, tekel, parson. Amen. We can all go home. Oh, you are. Oh, sorry. It goes on. This is what these words mean. Numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes, given a gold chain, dabbed, was hung around his neck. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. That's a lot, right? Let me just show you these two other verses out of Colossians, okay? says this, And you, being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, Jesus, has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you. Say, forgiven me. All trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. God, we thank you that your word is living and sharper and powerful. I thank you, Jesus, that you are the word and you didn't remain in that grave. You came out. You defeated death and sin and sickness. Lord, you defeated the principalities and the rulers of this world. I thank you, Jesus, that you rose again, that we could have new life. And today we celebrate that. Lord, I pray that you'd anoint the word. Lord, I pray the word would go out into good soil tonight. Lord, it would go down. We would hear the word. We would receive the word. We would do the word. and We'd produce a harvest of 30 60 and a hundredfold. And anybody who believed that shouted, 
Amen and amen. It's, it's really a crazy story, right? Here's the king. He's throwing this party. Everyone's, you know, just drinking out of these things. And, you know, when we read these things, sometimes we, we forget and you can kind of bypass over what the Bible is really saying. And here they are and they're having gold and silver and wood and clay and they're drinking and they're worshiping these idols. And we, it's kind of strange, and, and it's almost ludicrous to think of that. Like, what were they doing? Were they just bowing down, or were they praising and dancing? You know, hey, thank God to silver. You know, thank silver. Hey, hooray for silver. You know, what about wood? Isn't wood awesome? Who doesn't love wood? Worship him. You know, like, oh, okay, we'll worship you wood. You know, it's strange to, to think of that and imagine that. Yet there are people, and, and maybe some of us, sometimes we get tossed in that we're worshiping inanimate objects. We're worshiping things that really have, can't do anything in our life. One that a lot of people worship is Monet, right? We're thinking, oh man, if I don't, if I don't get this dollar bill to this place, or if I don't get more money in, I gotta, I gotta get there. And man, if I don't get this bill over to that bill and all these things, we, we end up making money an idol. And God is over there going, what are you doing? Stop it. That dollar bill can't do anything. Or not even that hundred dollar bill can't do anything to help you out. I'm the one who can help you out. And here is this group of people and they're over there and they're celebrating just wood and silver and clay and bronze and, and gold. And, they're, and they took God's, you know, all these sacred or, you know, uh, cups and things like that. And they're kind of like in your face, God. Hey, we're using your stuff that, you, that everyone thought was so cool and it's for you. And we're using it to worship some other God. Well, guess what? God doesn't like that. God doesn't like it when you worship anybody else but him. I don't know if you knew that. He kind of gets uh, jealous. The Bible says that God is jealous for us. He wants all of us, not like the pieces or the remaining or the dregs of life. You know, uh, sometimes people post on Facebook, you know, when everything else goes bad, when all the the advice goes wrong and everything in, in life turns against you, that's when you should pray. Like, no, you should be praying every day with God. So those things don't happen that often. The prayer is not the last resort. And yet that's what a lot of us get into is we get into the last resort and we think, Jesus, you're my last resort. And God's like, uh, I should have been your first and you wouldn't have been in this position. We see that, you know, the struggle is real, you know, and our first world problems and all these things. They're really first world inflictions. They're our own problems that we're putting on ourselves. Why are we all so stressed now? Turn your phone off for seven hours and all the stress will dissipate. Did you know that? You won't get one single email from anybody. You won't get one text message complaining or what. You won't even go on Facebook and have any fear of missing out. All your stress will just melt away. We're over there. I'm so stressed out. My life is so hard. Really? Did you go to the grocery store the other day? Yeah, I know. But I could only afford 17 bags of chips. Like, okay. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is looking for clean water, living on a dollar a day. But the struggle is real, man. They didn't have my favorite, you know, 17 pump mocha, you know, coffee latte at Starbucks this morning. The line was out the door. I had to wait for three minutes. It's like, man, this, this is a rough life. I mean, I feel you. You know what I mean? It's rough out there. I know. And this is, this is kind of the thing we get into. God's the last resort. And it's really, we're the ones inflicting ourselves with this problem. We're the ones getting in our own, like shooting ourselves in the foot. That, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be removing ourselves out of the equation and letting God work through us to accomplish his will. And God wants us to worship him first not last. And the way we sort of remove ourselves is to begin to put him first in everything. 
David says it like this. He says, early in the morning, I will seek you. Now, if you're not a morning person and we've got some people who work nights, that's okay. It doesn't have to be early in the morning, but first thing in the day, then just put him first, right? And if you get up early, then you can early in the morning, you can seek him, right? But it's the idea of putting God first in your life that that allows you to truly worship him. And in this story, these guys were not doing that. And all of a sudden they're celebrating and they're partying. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden this hand comes on the wall and, and the DJ scratches and everything stops. And everybody looks over and here's this giant hand going. And, you know, the reaction would be what we would all do. We'd freak out. You know what I mean? We wouldn't be waiting for the bass to drop. We'd be like, oh my goodness, what is going on? Everyone's dropping their cups and freaking out. People are just running around, you know, throwing things. Ah! You know what I mean? The king's like, what do we do? And he says, bring everybody in here. Bring all the astrologers and the enchanters and the fortune tellers. And uh, this is a side note, but there are a lot of fortune tellers in Los Angeles. Have you ever noticed that? Like where, who is going to the, every one of them is like, there's nobody near them. And yet there's like in the, like right on the, you know, Santa Monica pier, there's like 17 fortune tellers. I'm like, who's going to these places that they can afford this level of real estate in LA? You know what I mean? Like thousands of dollars of rent. And here's this dude over 10 bucks for a fortune. Well, I'll give you $5. I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you for free. Better yet. You know what I mean? As a side note. Anyway, so they call all these people into the room and in the middle of the party. And it's like, King's like, can you tell me what this says? And everyone's like, you know, I think, uh, let me look at my Zodiac over here. Uh, nope. No, it doesn't look like a fish. No, nope. I'm out. You know what I mean? And then the other guy, the enchanter is over there. Who knows? I mean, what, I don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's calling a snake. You know what I mean? See if the snake will come up. And, you know, oh, the snake doesn't have anything either. You know, some other guys over there would tell us what it is. What are you saying to us? Would. Wood, speak. Silver, your turn. Nothing from silver either. Gold, what have you got to say? Tell us, gold, mighty gold. Gold says nothing. This is crazy. We're all kind of, you know, this is funny, right? But this is what we do, right? Facebook, what should I do with my life? That's the wrong place to ask, FYI. That's just a, a theological sidebar. Don't ask Facebook what you should do with your life. Okay, just you might want to write that down. Hey, I, I know Facebook is always asking you how you feel, but just tell them. Just go ahead and tell Facebook, man, I'm doing great. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. God's on the throne. The Holy Spirit lives within me. And just go ahead and put, put that on there and see how many little faces you get on there. Right? Yeah, you got seven reactions today. Post a picture of a cat, and you get thirty thousand likes. Post a scripture, one like. One brave Facebook Christian out there. Uh, everyone's going to know if I have a quick light. <sighs> it's all right. It turned out all right. So they call and everybody. No one knows what's going on. They're asking everybody else but Jesus. They're asking everybody but God, right, what the answer should be. And this is what we, we, we do that. Let me ask my good friend who's in the same position. What do you think I should do with my money? I know you don't have a job and you don't have any money, but what do you think I should do with mine? I think you should sell it and goodbye. You know, I think you should go and buy stocks or what? And he's like, you have no experience. You have no job. I should not be asking you. This is just a, that's a kind of a grown up thought there. Don't ask people who haven't gone where you're trying to go. Don't ask them for advice. Don't ask stock advice from a 12 year old. 
You say, that's really, that's a good, that's a good deep thought. Don't ask advice from a, you know, stock advice from a 22-year-old unless they're a self-made bazillionaire because of the stock market. Then you can ask them, right? But if they don't know anything about that, but here we are, we're asking everybody else, God, what's my purpose? And, or dude, what do you think my purpose in life is? Hey, boss, what do you think I should do with my life? No, you go back to Jesus and ask him, what is my purpose? What should I be doing? Oh, what do you think of this? Should I be doing that? Should I be doing this? It's asking God and putting him first because guess what? He knows what's best for you. He's some preachers put it like this. If you want to know what the product, and we're the product, if you want to know what the product is for, go back to the manufacturer because he's the one who made it and he can tell you what the product is supposed to be doing. Yeah. Amen? So here's what it says. Daniel comes in, like I said, he comes in like a boss, says, I don't want any, I don't need the gold chain. I've already got one, as you can tell here. And he says, I already got a couple purple robes. So go ahead and give all that stuff to somebody else. However... Because I like revealing God's secrets and because it's totally awesome, I'm going to tell you what this says anyway, in spite of all those things. And he gets up there and he tells those words, many, many, tekel, parson. And they're all like, okay, okay. And what does that mean? Okay, he says the first thing, many. He says the first word is numbered. And he says to the king, your days are numbered. Every one of our days, I don't know if you know this, are numbered. We all get 60, 80, some of us 100 years in life. Every one of our days are numbered. And so here on this aspect, we see the king and he's like, okay, uh, that's not good. My days are numbered. How many, how many do I have left over here on us? We should recognize that having our days numbered is actually a good thing. The Bible even says, teach us to number our days, Lord, so that we know what to do with each and every one of them. Teach us to take advantage of them. Teach us to maximize each and every day. You only get 168 hours a week. What are you doing with those 168 hours? Are you using them for Jesus? Are you using them for yourself? There's got to be some nice combo of both those. Some, uh, most of them can be for Jesus, and actually all of them can be for Jesus, and you can still do, you know, kind of what God's asked you to do in the midst of it. Amen? Teach us to number our days, that we can understand what we're supposed to be doing with them. So we see on in a good aspect, the numbering of our days is really a great thing, because we understand that we're not going to have too many more, so we should, in 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 the great Latin phrase, carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Seize every moment. Carpe carpet is another one that carpenters love. It sees the carpet. Okay, that's a side note. Somebody get that on the way home. Okay, teach us to number our days. He says it twice. And whenever God says something twice, that means he's trying to get your attention. So he's saying, Belshazzar, I'm trying to get your attention. Your days are numbered, fool. Your days are numbered. Then he goes into this next word, tekel. And it says this, is, this word is measurement. And this is interesting because we live in a world of measurement. Everything we do is measured, right? How many Facebook likes did you get today? Oh, I got 42 Facebook likes. Ooh, wow, man. Some guy over there, he got 30,000 Facebook likes. You know, Justin Bieber posts a picture of his armpit. Four million people love it. You know what I mean? That, that's the difference. You know what I mean? So here's this, this life of measurement. How many Instagram likes did you get? How many, you know, cute little hearts went up when you were periscoping? And uh, there's, I mean, there's too many things. How many snaps did you snap at the Snapchat? You know what I mean? How, how many things can we measure in life? 
Social media-wise, we say, well, that's just social media. No, it's in the business world. Basically, a lot of times the business world, one of their mantras is, if it can't be measured, then it did not happen. And so we see that even in the business world, everything is measured. You say, well, that's just the business world and social media. That's not my real life. Okay, how many steps did you take today? Huh? How many gallons of water were you supposed to be drinking? And did you record it? What about carbs? What about protein? What about fat? What about sugars? How many of us? We're over here. We're measuring everything. Why are we measuring everything? What does it matter if you took 10,000 steps? And I have a step counter on my wrist. It was, I just wanted to watch for all intents and purposes. But it counts my steps. And it counts how many times I'm active. Right? Why are we measuring all this? How many hours did you get to sleep last night? I was recording it and I thought to myself, this is so dumb. Who cares? I will never look back in three months from now and say, well, that's the problem. I only got seven and a half hours of sleep on Tuesday. <laughs> problem solved. Moving right. That's probably never going to happen. You know what I mean? Oh, you know what? Well, this is why I'm fat. I took 30,000. I only took 2,000 walks the other day, 2,000 steps the other day. That makes sense. No, it's, things don't need to be measured like that. And yet we are measuring them. And yet the question we come down to is, can we measure goodness? And if we were to ask everyone in this room, we'd probably get some variation, which may be similar, maybe not be similar, all these kind of things. Like, uh, What is good? Uh, I think it's good when you help other people. I think it's good when you vote. I think it's good when you brush your teeth. I think it's good when you this. I think it's good when you that. And we have all these different definitions of good, yet there's a measurement that God has that is the ultimate measurement, and that measurement is Jesus and his word. And so we see that when we are measured up to Jesus, that things begin to change. All of a sudden we look and go, ah, I'm not as good as Jesus. I said this in the first service that it would be like me and Michael Jordan and Jesus having a jumping to the moon contest. Jesus, because he's perfect, he jumps straight up, touches the moon, comes back down, lands cool. Michael Jordan, he jumps. He's got six feet. Me, I jump. I, got, I told everyone I got a 30-inch box jump vert. I don't do it in my suit jacket, but I can do it in real life. Can you think, oh, man, Michael Jordan would toast you with a vertical. Here's the thing. We're both 180,000 miles away still. So whether it was 30 inches or six feet, it doesn't matter. We're so far from touching the moon that it's a joke, Right? And this is where we fall with the handwriting, the measurement that we've been weighed on God's scales. Is It doesn't matter how high you can jump. Even Go ahead and get yourself a trampoline and jump 10 feet. You still didn't get a cloud. You still didn't even get near the cloud. You didn't get out of the stratosphere or the, you know, the whatever sphere. All these different levels of spheres before you get to space. You didn't even get up there. And this is the way it is in the measurement, the handwriting that is written in our hearts, our sin nature. The handwriting is all over the walls. And, and if we were to write out here the, the, the mistakes and things you made, what would be written on your wall? Don't, don't tell me out loud. Don't say out loud. What would be the things written on your wall? Liar, thief, idol worshiper, adulterer, whatever it is. There's all sorts of things that would be written. Hater. Anger, all these different things would be written on our heart. And the measurement 
we would fall sadly short of. And that's why we're here today. Is that we need favor with God to wipe out the handwriting that's against us. That's why we're celebrating is that we're not just celebrating. I mean, we are celebrating an empty tomb, but what that empty tomb tomb represents is Jesus's complete and total victory over sin. And not just because he never sinned, not just the sin of some people around him, but the sin of everybody past, present and future that in that instant, that moment of favor, lifetimes of labor were swallowed up in that moment so that we could be now like Jesus. We could now be righteous because of his grace and because of his favor that the handwriting of requirements that was on our hearts that we had written with our own life, that we'd written with the things that we've done and the mistakes that we made every in that one instant now every single one of those has been wiped away entirely that's a good place to say amen the handwriting of requirements the measurement had been wiped away and we're now even with jesus on the scales of righteousness that says it like this in the bible god made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Thank God for that. Thank God that he erased it. All the things, all the mistakes I've made. And you say, you're a pastor. Have you only made two mistakes? I make, I'm allowed two mistakes a year according to the contract I made. with. No, I make mistakes every single day, just like you do. But here's the thing. We can walk in the grace of God because he's wiped out not just all the things we used to do, not the things that we have currently or maybe we are doing or maybe the th- it's all the things also that we are going to do. Every one of those things have been wiped completely away by the blood of Jesus. That is awesome. That's why when we say he's risen and we say he's risen indeed because If he hasn't risen, then the handwriting is still on the wall. And that's where this next part comes in, is that it says that he, the last word was divided. See, Belshazzar didn't get the chance that we get today. You could say, well, it just happened in an instant. He didn't even have the chance. It was building up for years. And Daniel even said that he said, you knew the king before you. You saw King Nebuchadnezzar when he went out and says this in Daniel chapter four, that King Nebuchadnezzar went out on his balcony, looked over Babylon. He says, see what wonderful place this wonderful place that I have made is beautiful. I am so awesome. And the Bible says that in that instant that he said that God says, you, sir, are going to be humbled. And moments later, King Nebuchadnezzar was banished from the kingdom. And the Bible says that he was out in the fields eating grass like a cow. And his nails became like claws because they had grown so long. And his beard and his hair were like bird's feathers because they were just all over the place. He was a hot mess out in the field because he didn't humble himself. And Daniel says, you saw what happened to him. And yet here you are taking the stuff from God's own temple, worshiping idols in the face of God. And now this thing is going to be divided right out from underneath you. That's, that's the writing was on the wall and he couldn't even read it. 
Yet we have the opportunity tonight to recognize that the writing's on the wall, but Jesus can come along and scrub it out. There's a story in the New Testament, the Gospels. Jesus is out among the people and the Pharisees come and they throw this woman at Jesus' feet. The Bible says that she was, they caught her in the act of adultery and they throw her at their feet. And they said, what are you going to do about this woman? She was caught in the very act of adultery. And without a word, Jesus kneels down and begins to write in the dirt. And the Bible doesn't say what he wrote. And scholars have tried for thousands of years, two of them at least, to figure out what Jesus write, wrote in that dirt. And the fact of the matter is we'll never know. But I do know this. That handwriting, whatever he wrote, is gone because of his blood. Jesus looks up and he says, whoever is not sinned, go ahead and throw the first stone. Every one of those guys who was ready to stone that woman because of Old Testament law, they dropped their stones, walked away, and Jesus looked at the woman and says, where are your accusers? She says, they're not around. He goes, and I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. And it's the same thing he's saying to each and every one of us. Where are your accusers? Who's accusing you? Because I've wiped that out. I've washed it all away. I don't know where we got into this mentality that God is not good or that God doesn't want to bless us or God does not love us or God wants us to be sick or broken in any way, shape or form. That is simply not true. That is a lie from the devil. God wants each and every one of us to have life and life more abundantly. Amen. Amen. Bow your heads as as we close tonight. God is good and his offer to you and I is the same that he's been offering to all of humanity since he rose from that grave. He says, if you would just accept me, then I'll give you that grace. You say, well, what do I got to do for it? Nothing. All you got to do, bow your heart, give your life over to Jesus, accept his salvation. And he'll pour out his grace on you. If you're here tonight and you say, that's me, Casey, I need the grace of God. I want to give my life to Jesus. That's you.